A teenage girl obsessed with imagination and fantasy angrily wishes for her baby brother to be spirited away by goblins, only to discover that goblins have done exactly as she asks. To rescue her brother, she must make her way through an elaborate maze filled with bizarre creatures, and she must do it within 13 hours if she wants to ever see her brother again. Labyrinth is one of the most popular children's films of all time. Since its release in 1986, it's become part of a select group of perennial favourites with audiences, rediscovered by one generation after another for its bold visual imagery, its popular songs and enchanting characters. The film itself marks a unique collision of talent between writers, including former Monty Python performer Terry Jones, a director, Muppet creator Jim Henson, a producer, Star Wars creator George Lucas, and stars, including the iconic musician and actor David Bowie. The film tells a broadly familiar story, but it tells it in a comparatively unique and wonderful fashion. Hi, I'm Grant Watson, and I'm reading you the Fiction Machine essay, Everything I've Done, I've Done For You, about the making of the 1986 film Labyrinth. You can read the print version over at www.fictionmachine.com. Despite the broad range of talent assembled to produce Labyrinth, it remains first and foremost Jim Henson's film. Jim Henson was a giant of American popular culture. He started his career as a puppeteer for children's television, and over a period of 30 years he had transformed his creations, which he whimsically named Muppets, into an international phenomenon. They formed the basis for the hugely successful educational series Sesame Street, featured prominently in the first season on Saturday Night Live, and featured in their own enormously successful variety series The Muppet Show. While entertaining children formed the bulk of Henson's career, his attention was always pressed on new concepts and new ideas. Sometimes these ideas were technical, particularly in terms of new methods of presenting puppet characters in films and television. And sometimes these ideas were creative. Certainly by 1980, Henson was chafing against the expectations of producing endless Muppet productions. By this stage, his characters had graduated to their own feature film, 1979's The Muppet Movie. While he was contractually obliged to produce and direct a second Muppet film, his heart lay in a much more elaborate and ambitious project titled The Dark Crystal. The Dark Crystal was a feature film set entirely within a fantasy world. The film used complex and groundbreaking puppetry techniques to develop a world with no human actors in it, literally the first time such a feature had been produced. Henson co-directed the film with his long-time performing partner Frank Oz, and collaborated closely with artist and production designer Brian Froud. When The Dark Crystal was released into cinemas in 1982, it was not as warmly received by audiences and critics as Henson had expected. He found people telling him that it was too cold and bleak and difficult to watch. The film was a mild commercial success, and certainly its prestige grew immensely over the following years, but for Henson it felt like a small disappointment. While his Muppet productions continued, he handed directing duties of 1984's The Muppets Take Manhattan to Frank Oz, Henson was focused on directing a follow-up to The Dark Crystal that could be brighter, funnier, and more engaging. It was to be, in an effect, everything he had been told The Dark Crystal was not. Henson said... Brian Froud and I started considering Labyrinth as The Dark Crystal opened, because we decided not to think about another film until Crystal did open. We wanted to do a lighter weight picture, with more of a sense of comedy, since Dark Crystal got kind of heavy, heavier than we had attended. Henson's first thoughts were of some kind of epic mythological tale, possibly inspired by the Mahabharata or some similar text. It was Brian Froud who suggested something based around goblins instead. Froud had already devoted much of his career to illustrations of goblins, fairies, and other European folkloric characters, and was not particularly interested in designing anything based on Indian mythology. Froud's first illustration for the project was of a baby surrounded by goblins, and from there he and Henson came up with an idea that the baby had been kidnapped by the goblins. When Henson asked for a setting, it was Froud again who suggested some kind of giant maze. Both men felt there could be some metaphorical purpose for the maze, and with those two elements in place, their next project was established.
To produce his new fantasy picture, Henson approached one of the Hollywood figures whom he had most admired in recent years, George Lucas. Henson had first met Lucas when the latter acquired a puppet made for his 1980 sequel, The Empire Strikes Back. Originally, Lucas had wanted Henson himself to perform the role of the diminutive Jedi Master Yoda, but at Henson's own recommendation, Frank Oz was hired instead. Lucas's own producer, Gary Kurtz, went on to produce The Dark Crystal for Henson and Oz, and Lucas even gave unofficial feedback to Henson on a rough cut of Crystal prior to its release in 1982. Henson said, One of the main reasons I wanted George involved in Labyrinth is because I think he balances me. I'm stronger than he is on character and personality, while he's very strong on plot and structure, far more than I am. George Lucas said, One of the reasons I got involved was that this picture doesn't talk down to kids. I've been involved in one way or another in every story made in this genre for the last five years, E.T., Return to Oz, Dragon Slayer, and my own films. One contribution I could make to Labyrinth was to keep the script focused. It's a real trick to keep a script focused, to keep it from going for the amusing incident. Jim is receptive to ideas. I like to throw out a lot of ideas and not have anybody be threatened or get his feelings hurt. A conversation with fellow fantasy artist Alan Lee led Brian Froud to realise that his and Henson's original setting, an entirely fantasy world with no link to reality whatsoever, was going to bring their project uncomfortably close to Legend, another fantasy film being directed by Ridley Scott at the same time. To accidentally... Avoid tre- well, to avoid accidentally treading on the same territory, I suppose, they developed the idea of a young woman named Sarah travelling from our real world into a fantasy environment, copying, in essence, Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland. In a small coincidence, Labyrinth and Legend would ultimately share the same cinematographer, the respected English director of photography Alex Thompson, who had previously shot John Borman's Excalibur. Thompson said, Jim Henson used to say, Look, tell me if you did this on Legend, and we won't do it. I lit the film brighter, because the sets were brighter. While promoting The Dark Crystal in Japan in March 1983, Henson started to jot down ideas and sketches in a notebook, the traditional manner in which he developed new projects. There was no story developed, simply random concepts and ideas of things that the film's young protagonists might encounter in their travels. At this stage, Henson was mulling over three possible titles, The Labyrinth, The Maze, and The Labyrinth Twist. His first outline focused on a king and a court jester attempting to make their way through the labyrinth, which was filled with all manner of elaborate and ornate traps. But he eventually settled on the the female protagonist, the sister of a kidnapped baby, on a quest to rescue him. Once he had a rough handle on the sorts of visual imagery that he wanted to present, Henson hired the Canadian poet Dennis Lee to develop a storyline. By December, Lee had completed what he described as a poetic novella. Henson kept himself busy in the meantime, performing in and producing The Muppets Take Manhattan for TriStar Pictures, overseeing the final development of his new HBO series Fraggle Rock, and even toying with another TV project titled Star Boppers that ultimately went unrealised. With the storyline being developed, Henson went about finding a screenwriter to translate Lee's finished novella into a filmable script. His daughter Lisa, then working at Warner Brothers, had recently read Terry Jones' children's novel Eric the Viking. She thought its humorous tone was perfect for what her father described in his Labyrinth project. Jim Henson was already familiar with Jones's work, having been an avid viewer of Monty Python's Flying Circus, and immediately called John Cleese, with whom he had already worked on both The Muppet Show and The Great Muppet Caper, to sound out if Jones would be likely to be interested. Cleese reportedly told him hiring Jones would be, quote, a really marvellous idea. Unbeknownst to Henson at the time, Terry Jones had started thinking about launching his own film adaptation of Eric the Viking. A day after a missed call from Henson's office, Jones called the office himself to try to set up a meeting to convince Henson to collaborate on an Eric feature. 
Once contact had been made, Henson successfully convinced Jones to put Eric the Viking aside, Jones would ultimately direct that five years later, and write Labyrinth for him instead. In Terry Jones, Jim Henson gained an unexpected bonus. In addition to being a successful comedic writer and performer, Jones was also an Oxford University graduate, majoring in English literature and history. This background heavily informed Jones' take on the material, ultimately giving Labyrinth a rich medieval detail behind the humorous characters and the colourful set pieces. Jones commenced work on a Labyrinth screenplay in January 1984. He found Dennis Lee's novella to be rather difficult with which to work, and instead relied heavily on Brian Froud's illustrations. He explained, I sat at my desk, with Brian's drawing stacked on one side of the desk and writing away, sort of to see what would happen. And every time I came to a new scene and I needed something to happen, I looked through Brian's drawings and found a character who was speaking to me already. And suddenly there was the scene. It was wonderful. The film was initially conceived as a period piece, with both Sarah and her brother coming from 19th century England. This setting was changed to contemporary America in order to boost the film's commercial appeal. Jones soon found that his own ideas did not match well with what Henson already had in mind. He said... In my version, she goes into the labyrinth and eventually finds that there is no solution. She keeps thinking she solved it, and then it keeps cheating on her. The idea in the end is that she finds out that there is no solution. You've just got to enjoy it. When she gets to the centre, she finds out that the character who seemed all-powerful to begin with isn't all-powerful. In fact, he's someone who uses the labyrinth, which is basically the world, to keep people from getting to his heart. She gets there and annihilates him in the end. So it's about the world and about people who are more interested in manipulating the world than actually bearing themselves at all, having any kind of emotional honesty. Jim couldn't understand the story at all. Henson knew that there were elements in Jones's draft that he liked, but he also knew that there were parts that he did not like. Working out how to tease out his desired screenplay would take another 24 drafts and several additional writers. It was during the writing process that George Lucas was most active as executive producer, providing feedback on each draft as it was completed and offering suggestions as to how to better pull the structure of the screenplay together. The second screenwriter hired was Laura Phillips, one of the writers on Fraggle Rock. While she reworked Terry Jones' draft, Jim Henson kept busy, supervising the release of Muppet Babies, an animated spin-off from The Muppets Take Manhattan, and the first animated TV series based on the Muppet characters. One of the changes made as the screenplay developed was how the film's villain was presented. Jareth, the self-appointed Goblin King, was originally planned as a puppet character. In an effort to give the film more of a human element that the Dark Crystal lacks, Jareth was reimagined as a role for a human actor to play. Jim Henson said, The Goblin King was originally planned to be another creature, until it occurred to us to make it an actor. While we were considering various and sundry actors, we thought to make Jareth a musical person, someone who could change the film's whole musical style. Composer Trevor Jones, who provided the orchestral score for The Dark Crystal, recalled discussing the idea with Henson. He said, Jim and I were sat in an airport. I don't remember which airport it was, because we visited so many cities in so little time. And Jim asked me, and I remember this clearly, what are we going to do next? And I said, what do you mean? And he answered, for a film, what are we going to do next? More or less, I told him, now that we've done this big orchestral score for Dark Crystal, why don't we go for a rock idiom? Why don't we use a completely... contemporary approach to fantasy. He stared and replied, what do you mean? And I told him, we'll use drums and guitars to give the film a very contemporary feel. And one thing that would make the film totally different from The Dark Crystal would be the use of real actors. Then Jim thought for a moment and told me, if we use this rock idiom, who could we use to give a real sense to it? So we began thinking and all the big rock stars, Mick Jagger, Sting, all the rock stars who could act. Jim Henson had been considering approaching actors such as Simon McCorkendale or Kevin Kline. 
With the idea forming of having a singing Jareth with a rock star persona, he immediately gravitated towards using Sting, the former lead singer of The Police, who had recently launched his own solo career. It was Henson's sons, John and Brian, who intervened, pushing their father to approach David Bowie instead. Their argument was simple. Sting might have been popular at the time, but Bowie would remain popular forever. David Bowie had already performed in several feature films, including Nicholas Rogue's The Man Who Fell to Earth and David Hemming's Just a Gigolo, and also performed the title role of The Elephant Man on Broadway. Bowie also possessed a mercurial quality that Sting lacked. He regularly changed his style and image, giving Henson a broader latitude in developing Jareth for the screen. David Bowie said, He first brought me the concept on the 1983 tour that I did in America, and asked me if I'd consider doing the part. And he showed me Brian Froud's artwork, and he showed me a copy of The Dark Crystal, which I found a fascinating piece of work. And I could see the potentiality of making this kind of movie, with humans, with songs, with more of a lighter comedy script. Henson met Bowie in New York on the 18th of June 1984. While negotiations and creative discussion continued over the ensuing months, it was not until February 1985 they met again in person. Henson travelled to Bowie's home in Switzerland to finalise their agreement before Bowie was officially signed on to play Jareth. Bowie's casting led to a rewrite of the screenplay, since its then-current draft, Jareth did not appear too frequently throughout the film. With the addition of a popular star, as well as several musical numbers, this approach needed to be revised. Bowie wrote all of the songs for the film, five in all, with Trevor Jones composing the score afterwards, broadly based on Bowie's melodies. Bowie said of his character, One feels that he's rather reluctantly inherited the position of being Goblin King, as though he'd really like to be, I don't know, down in Soho or something. But he's not. His thing in life is to be Goblin King, and he runs the whole place as well as he can. And he's kind of spoiled. He gets everything his own way. He's a big kid. Like many actors, Bowie found working with puppets slightly disorientating. I had some initial problems working with Hoggle and the rest, because for one thing, what they say doesn't come from their mouths, but from the side of the set or from behind you or wherever, because that's the way it's done. The puppet builder Tim Rose recalled, When Bowie came on set, he had with him who we called the Bulldog, his personal minder. She came around to all of us and told us, Mr. Bowie is sitting in his chair and he doesn't wish to be disturbed. When Mr. Bowie is smoking a cigarette, this means Mr. Bowie is having personal time to himself and doesn't wish to be disturbed. So to the Muppet people, it was like, oh, Mr. Bowie's having a hard time coming out of his shell. Well, we'll show him. So we completely ignored everything she said to us. Within a week and a half, he was having so much fun with us that he told her to go home and that she wasn't really needed around here. On the 5th of July, 1984, 20 actresses auditioned for the role of Sarah, of whom only one, the 18-year-old Helena Bonham Carter, was shortlisted. From July to January 1985, additional auditions were held on a monthly basis. An extraordinary list of young actresses read for Henson, including Sarah Jessica Parker, Mary Stuart Masterson, Laura Dern, Lily Taylor, Laura San Giacomo, Marisa Tomei, and Mia Sara. A select few, notably Jane Krakowski, Ali Sheedy, and Maddie Corman, were shortlisted alongside Helena Bonham Carter. Henson, however, remained unconvinced and continued searching. While Jim Henson was negotiating with David Bowie and auditioning actresses, he was also negotiating with the Australian magnate Robert Holmes Accord. In 1982, the business tycoon had led a takeover of Associated Communications Corporation, ACC, from Lord Lou Grade, giving his company ownership of not only the Muppet movie and the great Muppet caper, but also 120 episodes of The Muppet Show. After weeks of negotiation, Jim Henson repurchased the Muppet Productions from Holmes Accord for $6.5 million. The deal included all rights to license or produce merchandise as well, something that was becoming increasingly lucrative. 
After securing the rights to his earlier works, Henson took a, lab- a vacation to Edinburgh, where he spent a week poring over the various drafts of Labyrinth in an attempt to pull them together. On the 24th of September 1984, Henson met with George Lucas, Fraggle Rock producer Larry Merkin and Laura Phillips to discuss her latest draft of the Labyrinth screenplay. The aim of the meeting was to take the elements that worked best in Phillips's draft, incorporate them with the pre-existing Terry Jones draft, and to find a stronger through-line for Sarah's character development. Jones didn't entirely agree with Lucas and Henson's insistence that Sarah's emotional journey be so carefully structured. He said in a note to Henson, I don't think we need to lay Sarah's character on the line too much. The function of the late-for-babysitting episode is to establish her thoughtlessness and refusal to grow up and accept responsibility. But we've got a live actress playing the part, and she can convey a lot of this in her manner and by the way she walks and talks. The existing screenplay draft had Jareth masquerading as the writer of the play Sarah reads in a park at the beginning of the film, and then stealing her brother away against her wishes. One key change in the rewrite was to make Sarah complicit in her brother's disappearance. She actively asks for him to be taken away, and then must recover him as a result. It was a smart change, giving her more of a personal stake in the story and forcing a maturation of her character as the film progressed. In October 1984, Jim Henson's Creature Shop team started to undertake test shoots with rough mock-ups of the film's various puppet characters, in order to determine appropriate scales for each of them. Jim Henson participated in the tests personally, juggling the shoot with promotional duties for the recently launched Fraggle Rock, shooting scenes for the new season of Sesame Street in New York, and lecturing at the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences in New York. By Christmas, the special effects team desperately needed to start working on props and set elements in order to meet their April deadline, yet a final approved screenplay had not arrived. On the orders of producer Eric Rattray, the team started work based on the most recent draft they had available. That final screenplay, expected in December, didn't arrive in January either. In February 1985, Henson hired yet another writer, the comedian Elaine May, to take a pass at the screenplay and tighten up its dialogue. This draft, which was approved by Henson just four days before the film started shooting, was the final version. The screenplay had one final hurdle before it could be committed to production. The author and artist Morris Sendak had been told of the film's storyline, and he felt it tracked perilously close to that of his 1981 book Outside Over There, in which a young girl is forced to rescue her baby sister from goblins. Furthermore, Sendak had been told the film was to include a group of violent, raucous monsters named Wild Things, which he felt infringed on the rights of his popular picture book, Where the Wild Things Are. Well, the Wild Things were rapidly renamed Fireys and retained in the final film. As for the storyline, Henson felt his work stood on its own and continued, despite Sendak's protestations. Despite this, or possibly because of it, Sendak did receive a thanks to credit in the final film, and a copy of Where the Wild Things Are prominently appears in scenes set in Sarah's bedroom. Executive producer David Laser said, Jim was hurt. If things had been reversed, he would say, oh, go use it. But he didn't consciously steal anything. The audition process for casting Sarah had initially targeted 18-year-old actresses who could play younger ages, since that approach would avoid the time restrictions that came with using a minor. When that approach failed to deliver an actress who met with Henson's satisfaction, the director started considering younger performers. Henson said, Roughly at that point, Jennifer Connolly came in, and she was great. It was one of those moments you hope happen when you're casting. She just came in and seemed exactly right. The 14-year-old Connolly had first worked as a child model when she was 10. At her mother's suggestion, she started auditioning for acting roles as well, and was soon cast in the role of Deborah Gelly in the um, Sergio Leone sprawling film drama Once Upon a Time in America. She subsequently starred in Dario Argento's 1985 horror film Phenomena. 
Connolly was offered the part within a week of auditioning in early February 1985, and as soon as she accepted it, Henson paid for her and her mother to relocate to London in advance of the shoot. Connolly and Henson enjoyed a close working relationship during the labyrinth shoot. She later said, I really trusted him and everything he was doing. As a person, he was very gentle. He'd never raise his voice. He's very under control, calm and easygoing. I don't think anyone could really dislike him. Henson said, I found I could talk very straight to her. I didn't have to tiptoe around her feelings or anything like that. Labyrinth commenced principal photography at London's Elstree Studios on the 15th of April 1985, following several weeks of puppetry rehearsals. David Bowie was not available for filming until June, and so the first six weeks of shooting concentrated on Sarah's adventures through the Labyrinth. The $25 million production occupied all nine sound stages at Elstree, with the film's various puppets and animatronic characters filling the creature workshop over in Hampstead Heath. Producer Martin Baker recalled, It was a big movie. I mean, Jim didn't do anything unless it was complicated and unwieldy. One element contributing heavily to the complexity of the Labyrinth shoot was the huge number of puppeteers, technicians and production staff required to hide either just below the action or out of shot. Most puppet characters required at least two puppeteers to operate, and they required small TV monitors to see their performances as they went, and that meant a complicated maze of screens, cameras and cables littered around the set. These technical requirements restricted cinematographer Alex Thompson to mostly static camera angles, with little opportunity for tracking shots or pans. Shift the camera two inches off shot, and it would likely reveal a cable, a monitor or a technician. During the shoot, Henson remained active in other productions. He would typically shoot Labyrinth from Monday to Friday, take a plane to New York on the Friday night, spend the Saturday supervising other projects, notably the Little Muppet Monsters and Fraggle Rock TV shows, and then take a second plane back to London on the Sunday. Likely due to his busy schedule, Labyrinth was the first Henson production in which he did not perform any of the characters himself. There's a clever misdirection in the opening moments of Labyrinth. We cut from the credits to the scene of a young woman in a medieval gown delivering a defiant speech. Except it's suddenly apparent it's not what it appears to be. We're simply watching Sarah, a contemporary American teenager, reciting lines of dialogue from a book titled The Labyrinth. We'd been promised a fantasy film by the advertising and appear to get it, only to have it yanked out from under our feet. The scene is also rather clever in how it foreshadows the film's climax. What Sarah reads out here, she'll say again when confronting Jareth. Sarah realises she's running late and sprints across town to get home. Her father and stepmother are going out and she's supposed to be babysitting her infant brother. She is, understandably, in trouble. Sarah, also not surprisingly, despises her stepmother. She's a girl obsessed with fairy tale and fantasy and an evil stepmother fits that narrative perfectly. Upset at being chastised, Sarah, Sarah storms off to her bedroom. Sarah's stepmother and father were played by Shelley Thompson and Christopher Malcolm. Aside from Sarah, Jareth and baby Toby, they're the only humans seen in the film. Thompson was primarily a theatre actress, although she later found fame playing Barbara Leahy on the popular Canadian comedy series Trailer Park Boys. Christopher Malcolm had played a variety of small roles in film and television. Like Thompson, his most famous role came some years later when he played the recurring character Justin in the BBC comedy Absolutely Fabulous. A closer examination of the contents of Sarah's bedroom is illuminating. It includes a marble maze, copies of The Wizard of Oz and Where the Wild Things Are, handmade stuffed toys resembling the various puppet characters of the film, a demonic-looking figure resembling Jareth, a music box with a princess on top dressed identically to Sarah in the film's ballroom sequence, and a prominent print of an M.C. Escher drawing of randomly positioned stairs and doorways. In essence, everything that Sarah encounters in her journey through the labyrinth is already present before her journey begins. Briefly seen in this scene is a photograph of Sarah's biological mother, apparently an actress, arm-in-arm with what we can assume is her new partner. 
Critically, the partner in the photo is played by David Bowie. So what are we to make of this? All of the elements of Sarah's imminent fantasy adventure are already in her life. The characters she'll meet are her own soft toys. She's already been reading a version of her adventures in a book called The Labyrinth, and the villainous goblin king looks identical to her mother's new boyfriend. The immediate assumption is that everything about to happen in the film is imagined, with Sarah dreaming the entire experience. While that explains the bulk of the film, it doesn't explain the final scene, in which Sarah, freed from the labyrinth and back in her room, successfully begs its various inhabitants to stay with her. That scene basically reduces the possible iterations of the film down to three. First, that Sarah is still dreaming when the film concludes, which is the easiest explanation, but is somewhat unsatisfying. Second, that she's simply imagining them with her, which seems equally unsatisfying. Third, it's the possibility that Jareth is real, has been observing her for some time, and creates the labyrinth and its inhabitants purely to seduce and impress her. Sadly, I suspect the real answer is a fourth option, that Henson, with a strong sense of whimsy, simply threw in the goblins in her bedroom for a happy yet nonsensical ending. That third reading is a potent one, for our, however. There's a very slight but disturbing sexual frisson between Sarah and Jared throughout the film. It's too evident not to be deliberate, and it adds an unexpected edge to the film's bright, colourful frivolity. Jareth forces Sarah to explore his labyrinth because he wants, perversely, to please her. He looks like her mother's boyfriend because he wants to appear familiar to her. She spends her life absorbed in fantasy stories, medieval costumes, and fairy tale creatures, and so he serves up exactly that which she has already surrounded herself. At his entrance in human form, he doesn't even introduce himself. It's up to Sarah to identify him. She says, You're him, aren't you? You're the Goblin King. Jareth is obsessed with Sarah. He watches her in the guise of a white owl at the film's beginning, and he watches her in the same guise at its end. In between, he gives her everything she th- he thinks that she wants. This is my preferred reading of the film. Sarah is real. Jareth is real. Everything she encounters after her brother is taken, he's created for her. Sarah's baby brother was played by Brian Froud's own infant son, Toby. Jim Henson said, Brian Froud was expecting a child at the time that we needed a baby. It was funny because Brian had done an early illustration of the baby surrounded by goblins long before his wife got pregnant. The child arrived looking just like the illustration. It was uncanny. The screenplay initially named the baby Freddy, but it was easier on set to simply use Toby's own name. Almost 30 years later, Toby Froud said, I have vivid memories of goblins' faces and strange creatures and chaos around me that could just be from growing up in the house I lived in, or from seeing the film as many times as I have, or it could be remembering the puppets that were in front of me. I'm not sure. As an adult, Toby Froud became an artist and filmmaker himself, collaborating with Lisa Henson on the short feature Lessons Learned, a puppet-based fantasy film that owes an enormous debt to their respective father's works. Jareth makes his entrance as soon as Sarah discovers Toby has been taken, fluttering through the window in the form of an owl before transforming into a strange, new romantic figure in deliberately tight pants, ruffled shirts and leather jackets. In terms of design, Jareth cuts an impressive figure, part rock star, part kabuki performer, part 18th century aesthete. He essentially starts attempting to seduce her from the first sentence. He gives her what she wants, her brother taken away. And the moment she changes her mind, he gives her the opportunity to get him back. He effortlessly juggles a glass orb in front of her to impress her, while offering her all manner of dreams and trinkets. The professional juggler, Michael Motion, manipulated the glass orb that Jareth presents to Sarah. In order to make it appear that it was Jareth who was rolling it from hand to hand, Morshan was forced to hide behind David Bowie and then manipulate the orb without looking. Jareth gives Sarah 13 hours in which to solve his labyrinth before her brother is lost forever. 
This 13-hour deadline, complete with an accompanying clock, is a neat touch. We're so used to thinking of hours in units of 12 that it instinctively feels unnatural. George Orwell uses the same technique at the start of his novel 1984. Well, the first person Sarah meets on her journey is Hoggle, a cowardly dwarf who's urinating in a pond and killing fairies with a spray can of poison. It positions him as a particularly cruel character, until Sarah gets bitten by one of the fairies. At the time, Hoggle was the most complex character of his type ever created for a film. Five performers were required to bring Hoggle to life, four puppeteers and a physical performer, Shari Weiser, inside. Weiser would perform the character's physical movements, while the puppeteers used 18 remote-controlled motors inside the head to manipulate the face. The lead puppeteer on the character was Henson's own son, Brian. Since completing college, Brian Henson had worked as a puppeteer on several film projects unrelated to his father, including Return to Oz, The Santa Claus Movie, and Little Shop of Horrors. Labyrinth marked his return to the family business. He recalled, Although I was working with my father, I considered myself independent of the company at that point. In addition to leading the puppetry on Hoggle, Brian Henson also provided his voice. Once inside the labyrinth, Sarah experiences a series of surreal, episodic encounters, beginning with a seemingly endless corridor that doesn't seem to have an end or any doors or side passages. This long corridor is a simple length of set with a forced perspective backdrop attached at one end. To create the illusion of Sarah running along the passage for some distance, twelve separate set dressings were produced that could be dropped into the scene piece of crumbling masonry in one, a fallen tree in another, and so on. The set was redressed constantly between shots so that once edited together, the illusion of a much longer passage would be complete. Sarah is helped out of the corridor by a blue-haired worm wearing a scarf. That puppet was performed by Karen Prell and voiced by Timothy Bateson. Prell had worked as a Henson puppeteer since the final season of The Muppet Show and remains most famous for performing the role of Red Fraggle in Fraggle Rock. Timothy Bateson is an English character actor who performed in all manner of film and television programs, most notably Grange Hill, where he played the schoolteacher Mr. Thompson. While Sarah begins her journey through the labyrinth, Jareth observes her progress from his goblin court. Jareth's court was one of the film's busiest and most complex sets, with more than 50 puppeteers cramped under the set floor and behind its walls, operating 48 separate puppet characters. So many goblins were required to fill the set convincingly that additional puppeteers were brought onto the project at a week's notice. Being surrounded by so many screaming, frantic goblin puppets was somewhat traumatic for Toby Froud. To calm him and enable the scene to be completed, David Bowie performed most of his close-ups with Toby on his lap and a hand puppet of the British children's TV character Sooty on his hand, just out of shot. It's in the Goblin's Court that David Bowie performs the first of four songs within the film narrative. A fifth song, Underground, accompanies the film's opening and closing titles in two different arrangements. But here he sings Magic Dance, an upbeat, largely nonsensical number with lyrics that reference The Bachelor and the Bobby Soxer, a 1947 comedy in which a teenage Shirley Temple forms a crush on the much older Cary Grant. Sarah comes across two doors, guarded by two strange-headed guards. Two-headed guards. They present her with a traditional knights and knave logic puzzle. One door leads to the next part of the labyrinth and the other to what they call certain death. She can only ask one guard one question before making her choice, and one guard always tells the truth, while the other always lies. The guards were performed by Steve Whitmire, Kevin Clash, Anthony Asbury and Dave Goles, and voiced by Anthony Jackson, Douglas Blackwell, David Shaughnessy and Timothy Bateson. Steve Whitmire had been working for Henson since The Muppet Show, where he performed Rizzo the Rat and other minor characters. He would subsequently replace Jim Henson as Kermit the Frog after his death. Clash was a recent hire by Henson Associates and was originally hired to perform on Sesame Street. At the time of shooting Labyrinth, he had recently taken over from Richard Hunt in playing a relatively obscure Muppet named Elmo. 
Over the ensuing decades, his performance would make Elmo one of the most widely known and beloved Muppet characters of all time. Dave Goles remains one of the most famous Muppet performers of all time, chiefly for his long-running performance as Gonzo the Great in The Muppet Show and subsequent films and TV specials. Sarah seems to have passed the test, but immediately falls through a trapdoor and into a pit. She's caught by a mass of talking hands. The Shaft of Hands was an idea originally developed by Terry Jones, who imagined simple hands talking by simple puppet motions between the fingers and the thumb. Jim Henson imagined something much more elaborate, with multiple hands combining to form numerous cartoon-like faces. It's an unexpectedly simple technique for a film packed with elaborate mechanical and animatronic characters, and yet it remains one of the most striking and effective elements. The helping hands were fitted into a 40-foot-high set, with 24 core performers and additional 75 extras slotting their hands through specially made holes in the walls. When it was clear that there weren't enough hands to convincingly fill the scene, another 150 prosthetic hands were quickly cast in rubber and added to the background. Henson recalled, And Jenny, because she had to fall down the middle of the shaft, was sitting in a harness on a pole arm, floating her out in the middle of space, which is not a comfortable place to be. When you're on top of that stage, you look like you're way up in the air, with nothing underneath you. And she was such a good sport. If anything, she enjoyed heights. Alex Thompson said, It was difficult, and I don't know if we overcame all the problems, really. I could only light that set from one end of the tube, so obviously the closer she is at the opening, the brighter she appears, and the darker she becomes down the bottom, which is only natural. In cinematic terms, I had to make it appear that she got dark and darker as she fell, while still allowing for enough light that you could see her at the bottom of the shaft. From the shaft, Sarah falls into the Oubliette, another Terry Jones edition based on the medieval dungeon where prisoners could be dropped inside and effectively forgotten, or at least ignored. She's rescued by Hoggle and escorted by him through a maze of underground passages. When Sarah and Hoggle reach the surface, it's in the presence of a wizened old man with a talking hat, referred to in the screenplay as the Wise Man. The Wise Man was performed by Frank Oz, although the character's voice was provided by the respected English actor Michael Horden. From here, Sarah enters the second main section of the labyrinth. While the first was comprised mainly of stone and brick walls, this second section is a combination of hedge maze and forest. To achieve the dense wooden look Henson wanted, the production team shipped in 120 truckloads of tree branches and almost 400 kilograms of dried leaves. Sarah rescues a giant beast-like creature named Ludo from goblins that are torturing him. Ludo was performed by two artists, Rob Mills and Ron Merck. They each took turns performing inside the massive suit. Even when constructed with deliberately lightweight materials, the costume still weighed 35 kilograms. It also heated up very quickly under the studio lights. Ultimately, both Mills and Merck had to be partially removed from the costume between takes to avoid getting overheated. Sarah is soon separated from Ludo in the forest, and she stumbles upon the Fieries, originally named the Wild Things until Morris Sendak objected. They are raucous red-furred creatures, capable of pulling off their own heads and playing with them, something that they suggest doing to Sarah's head as well. The fiery sequence was one of the most technically challenging of the film. Jim Henson said, We shot them against a black background and then shot a second pass with the camera on the set, so we had to have a motion control system which allowed the camera to repeat the move. There are more opticals, visual effects shots, in that segment of the film than anywhere else. The fiery is performed by a team led by Steve Whitmire. The Fiery's voices were supplied by a separate group of singers, including Danny John Jules and Charles Organs, both later to appear in the BBC television series Red Dwarf. John Jules as the cat, Organs as the holographic computer Queeg. Chilly Down, the musical number that the Fiery's perform here, was the one song in the film written by Bowie that he did not also perform. It was the first song that Bowie wrote and recorded for the film, undertaken while he was finalising his hit song Absolute Beginners in London. 
onto the next stage of the labyrinth, the bog of eternal stench. Special effects supervisor George Gibbs said, We made it from 30,000 gallons of water mixed with a ton of selicol, which is a non-toxic powder and thickening agent that's often used as the basis of wallpaper paste. We also threw in some brown and blue dyes, plus industrial liquid paraffin and lots of tiny glass beads. The result was a nice, gluggy, flexible sludge. Then we fixed things, so lots of little bubbly effects gurgled odiously. It all looked disgusting. While escaping the bog, Sarah is reunited with Ludo, and also meets the fourth and final member of her key companions, Sir Didymus, a terrier dressed like a chivalrous knight who rides a sheepdog named Ambrosius. Didymus was performed by Dave Goles and David Barclay, and voiced by David Shaughnessy. Ambrosius, his ride, is notably the same sheepdog as Sarah's real-world pet, Merlin. And the two names are almost certainly in reference to the 12th century writer Geoffrey of Monmouth, who in writing Arthurian stories gave the wizard Merlin's full name as Merlin Ambrosius. Sarah and her friends escape the bog, but Hoggle, fearful of further recriminations by King Jareth, offers Sarah a poisoned peach. She bites from the peach and falls into a dreamlike state. There she dreams of an elaborate masked ball where she dances with Jareth. The ballroom sequence was choreographed by the actress and dancer Cheryl Gates, who also choreographed much of the puppet movements throughout the film. She said, It was probably the most free time for me in terms of exploring my own ideas and working with people and trying to come up with a style for that sequence. Following the completion of Labyrinth, Gates concentrated more on her acting career. In the following year, she was cast under the stage name Gates McFadden as Dr. Beverly Crusher on the TV series Star Trek The Next Generation. The ballroom sequence was Jennifer Connelly's favourite part of the film. She said, I wore a beautiful silver ball gown, which was a real refreshing change from the blue jeans I wore in almost every other scene. It was really a gorgeous set, with masses of huge chandeliers and thousands of flickering candles, hundreds of silken cushions and curtains, and masses of people in strange masks and ornate dresses. There was the thrill of dancing with David Bowie with one, to one of the songs he composed especially for the film. That song is As the World Falls Down, a brother Brian Ferry-esque ballad that contrasts against the more energetic songs elsewhere in the film. Jim Henson was famously enamoured with the idea of masked balls, and had recently started holding an annual ball for staff at Henson Associates. During the first ball in 1984, he attended dressed in costumes and prop elements that had been in construction for Labyrinth. Sarah wakes from her dream in a seemingly endless junkyard, but has lost her memory. A strange, junk-collecting goblin tries to placate her and shows her to her bedroom. Sarah recalls her mission to save her brother and breaks out of the room, declaring all of her childhood toys and fantasy objects to be just junk. It seems a significant moment in Sarah's development, moving on from childhood obsessions to focus on her responsibility towards Toby. The props master Barry Wilkinson recalled, We had this huge stage filled with supposedly rubbish and all these little people are rummaging all through it and what have you, and of course you can't use real rubbish, it's all got to be manufactured. The Junk Lady was performed by Karen Prell and voiced by Denise Breyer. Prell operated the puppet from inside, with a hand manipulating the Junk Lady's face and the top half of her body hidden inside the enormous backpack of trinkets. Denise Breyer was an English voice actress whose credits included the English-language dub of the puppet series X-Bomber, under the title Starfleet, as well as the Jerry Anderson series Terrorhawks, where she voiced the villainous Zelda. Early drafts of Labyrinth had the Junk Lady actually be Jareth in disguise. Later drafts imagine her as a more malevolent figure, actively attempting to smother the amnesiac Sarah between piles of garbage. The final draft softened the character, making making her more of a pathetic and doddery figure. Sarah escapes from the junkyard, reunites with Ludo and Sodidimus, and approaches the Goblin City, the final stage of the labyrinth before reaching Jareth's castle. 
The gates of the Goblin City are defended by an enormous mechanical soldier referred to by the crew as Humongous. It represented an enormous technical challenge. At 15 feet, it was the largest puppet in the film by a considerable margin. And when it first appears, it's separated into two halves, each set into a massive door that link together when the doors are closed. Work on Humongous commenced in December 1984 and was only completed for shooting in early June 1985. The scale and power of the puppet led to it being constructed using servo hydraulics and operated via a computer program. Hoggle returns to rescue Sarah from Humongous, redeeming himself after his betrayal and securing his position as her friend. The Goblin City was the film's largest set and required the longest painted backdrop in the history of Elstree Studios. A large cast of little people were hired to play various goblins running through the streets behind rubber masks. These actors included Kenny Baker, best known for operating the R2-T2 prop in Star Wars, uh, Warwick Davis from Return of the Jedi and Willow, Malcolm Dixon from Time Bandits, and Jack Purvis from Brazil. Ludo defeats the goblin army by calling on assistance from rocks. Hundreds of rocks from small stones up to enormous boulders roll into the city, crushing or scaring away the goblin soldiers. A hundred prop rocks were constructed with polyurethane, with twenty of them fitted with remote control mechanisms that allowed them to roll and turn on command. Sarah leaves her friends behind at the entrance to Jareth's castle and confronts the Goblin King on her own. Inside she finds a warped, elaborate maze of platforms and staircases that resembles the M.C. Escher artistic print Relativity. The film's climax is a brilliant combination of set design, music, and visual effects. Some of the effort used, some of the effects sorry, used to create it were relatively complex, including split-screen visuals, cross-faded footage, and model work. Others, such as the bouncing of Jareth's orb into the baby Toby's hands, were simply achieved by letting Toby Farrell drop the orb and then replay the footage in reverse. Due to the complex nature of the set and the numerous incorporated matte paintings, Alex Thompson found it difficult to light the scene well enough to give it sufficient contrast. He ultimately installed small lamps just out of shot in each of the set's various arches and doorways, creating just enough lighting to give the scene a dynamic three-dimensional look. While Sarah scrambles up stairways and through doorways in an attempt to reach Toby, Jareth mournfully sings Within You, the fifth and final song of the film. To be honest, it's barely a song. Bowie's lyrics are brief and the melody jolts unexpectedly from 3-4 time to 4-4, 6-4 and back again. It creates a disturbing effect, as if the entire world of Labyrinth has started to fall off kilter. When Sarah finally confronts Jareth face to face, his obsession with her is displayed front and centre. Everything that you have wanted, I have done, he says. You asked that the child be taken? I took him. You cowered before me? I was frightening. I have reordered time. I have turned the world upside down, and I have done it all for you. Sarah defeats Jareth by reciting the climax of the book she was reading in the film's first scene, culminating in telling him, you have no power over me. She appears to be doing two things at the same time. On the one hand, she's closing off the narrative in the way that it's written in her book. With her role complete, the world of the labyrinth vanishes and she and Toby return to their respective bedrooms. On the other hand, she's actively rejecting not merely Jareth's unsettling romantic advances, but the fantasy narrative altogether. She's learnt maturity and responsibility, and she rejects Jareth as a means of putting away childish things. The Laura Phillips draft of the film was more direct, with Jareth proposing to Sarah that she become his queen, and Sarah refusing his advances in disgust. Jareth then transforms into his true self, what the script described as an undersized, ineffective, snivelling little goblin. She leaves with her brother, and the fantastical elements of the story end there. The finished film keeps the fantasy elements going. With Toby safely asleep in his cot, Sarah returns to her room where she sees visions of her labyrinth friends in a mirror. They offer to return if she ever needs them, to which she exclaims that she needs them all the time. 
The film ends with her partying in her room with Hoggle, Ludo and a crowd of goblins. The ultimate message of the film is fairly direct, that there's a time to grow up, but there's also it's also worth holding on to one's fantasies as well. Keeping one eye on the real world and the other immersed in whimsy and fantasy is pretty much a description for Jim Henson's own life. As far as the narrative goes, however, there's still the owl. It watches Sarah and the goblins through her bedroom window before flying off into the night. This is where any reading of the film as a dream or a purely internal fantasy on Sarah's part begins to fall apart, because she doesn't see the owl. She's clearly unaware of its presence, just as she wasn't aware of it in the film's very first scene. It seems, therefore, to be a completely separate element of the story, uninfluenced by Sarah's own imagination. It suggests that whatever Jareth actually is, he is still watching her, and continues magically giving Sarah whatever she desires. She wanted her brother gone, Jareth provided. She wanted to rescue her brother, Jareth acquiesced. Now she doesn't want Jareth at all, but does want his goblin creations. So that's exactly what he he provides. It's a creepy, slightly uncomfortable ending. It makes one one wonder how much further into Sarah's life this supernatural, shape-shifting stalker will continue to pursue her. This sense of discomfort is part of why I think Labyrinth is so effective as a film. It's not a simple children's fantasy filled with twee characters and whimsical invention. There's a definite undercurrent of sexuality running between Sarah and Jareth that's instinctively inappropriate. It's subtle, which means the film largely gets away with it, but it's also just prominent enough to give the story nuance and depth. Principal photography on Labyrinth concluded on the 6th of September 1985, although Henson did undertake a few minor reshoots in December involving the Hoggle puppet. With production complete, the Jim Henson Creature Workshop went about shutting down shop again until their services were needed. Henson personally intervened. He worried that a permanent animatronics and puppetry team could undertake research in between projects, as well as supply materials and services to other film and television productions. The team had already worked on their first non-Henson project a year earlier, providing puppets for Gavin Millar's film Dreamchild. Under the supervision of the producer Duncan Kenworthy, a ten-person team was held on retainer and started developing puppets and visual effects full-time. Over the years, the Creature Shop has worked on numerous productions, including those for the Henson Company, including The Storyteller, Dinosaurs and The Witches, and other producers, production companies and studios, including Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Babe, Lost in Space, and Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. George Lucas returned to Labyrinth once editing was underway, giving Henson feedback as the production was slowly cut together. In November, both Jennifer Connolly and David Bowie travelled to New York to undertake additional dialogue recording, ADR. While post-production went on, Henson continued to split his focus on other projects, including performing on Fraggle Rock, producing a Muppet 30th Anniversary TV special, and overseeing the development of a children's production titled The Tale of the Bunny Picnic. The final element of the film to be completed was its opening titles, which featured a then-startlingly realistic computer-generated owl. The striking images were created by Digital Productions, who had previously produced the visual effects scenes for The Last Starfighter in 1984. The owl was the first time a living creature had been generated with 3D computer graphics for a feature film. During production, Henson had noted that he had other feature projects in development. He said in one interview, I have a couple of films vaguely in mind, two wildly different ideas. I don't know which one I'm going to do. Those films never eventuated. Despite some positive test screenings and a generally happy reaction from TriStar Pictures, Labyrinth was a critical and commercial failure. Of the American critics, Gene Siska was the most negative. In fact, his review was openly hostile. He wrote, It has been said many times before in this space that the sight of a baby in peril is one of the sleaziest gimmicks a film can employ to gain our attention, but Henson does it. Siskel described Labyrinth as both really quite awful and an enormous waste of talent and money. 
Over at the Chicago Sun-Times, Roger Ebert was more polite, but still unenthused. Great energy and creativity went into the construction, production and direction of this movie, he wrote. But it doesn't have a story that does justice to the production. It's noted without comment that Ebert's review misidentifies Hoggle as Toby. In the New York Times, Nina Danton praised the puppets but criticised Jennifer Connelly's performance, writing that she lacks conviction and appears to be reading rehearsed lines that are recited without belief in her goal or a real need to accomplish it. Whether due to the negative reviews or of competing films, the moviegoing audience didn't flock to see Labyrinth. It opened on the 27th of June 1986 in 8th place, stacked behind the likes of The Karate Kid Part 2, Ruthless People, Top Gun and Ferris Bueller's Day Off. In its entire USA domestic run, the film grossed less than $13 million. Box office was similarly poor internationally, with the exception of Japan where it became an unexpected smash hit. The commercial failure of Labyrinth affected Jim Henson very deeply. Speaking shortly after Henson's death in 1990, his widow Jane recalled that Labyrinth was a real blow. He couldn't understand it. He talked to Brian and said, what did we do wrong? Brian Henson said, the film wasn't terribly well, wasn't received terribly well to start with. I think that was the closest I've seen him to turning in on himself and getting quite depressed. It was rather a bad time. He went to the south of France for a few days to wallow in it. He told me he was writing. What Jim Henson was writing were two handwritten letters to his family to be delivered to them by his attorneys in the event of his death. They ultimately received them after his unexpected death in 1990 due to streptococcal toxic shock syndrome. Longtime collaborator Frank Hoz vehemently defended the film. He said, Take a look at Labyrinth and forget the story for a moment. The images you get are abso-fucking-lutely amazing. Absolutely amazing. That's Jim's production design, and that's what his love was. It was just staggering the work he did. Over the years, Labyrinth's reputation has grown as successive generations of children have been won over by its unique charms. 21 years after Gene Siskel's savage review in the Chicago Tribune, the very same newspaper reviewed the film again, this time claiming, It's a real masterpiece of puppetry and special effects, an absolutely gorgeous children's fantasy movie. Jim Henson only directed three feature films in his entire career, The Great Muppet Caper, The Dark Crystal, and Labyrinth. Following Labyrinth's release, he focused on other television projects, notably The Storyteller and The Jim Henson Hour, as well as producing or advising on a range of films, such as Nicholas Rogue's The Witches or Steve Barron's Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. At the time of his death, he was negotiating to sell off his entire Muppet franchise to the Walt Disney Company, so that he could concentrate on new filmmaking projects. It was a tragedy that he died when he did, not just for his friends and family, but for all of the wonderful and imaginative fantasy films that he never managed to make and that audiences never managed to see. If you'd like to read more essays from Fiction Machine, just head over to the website www.fictionmachine.com, and if you like what you see, on the top corner of that page, you'll see a link to my Patreon campaign. That's where you can basically pledge as little as a dollar a month that will go to me to continue writing and researching these essays, and then reading them out on this podcast. Hope you've enjoyed it, and I hope you'll be listening or reading next time. Thanks a lot.